0: Father, we continue in prayer this morning, and we do praise you, and we really believe um, that when life seems meaningless and things don't work out, um, that there is direction, Lord, there is hope uh, because of Jesus, and just because he lives, Lord, that's reason enough to go on, and thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we have together this morning to encourage one another, build each other up. And bring glory to you. And Lord, we pray that we would do that. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Welcome here. If you're just joining us, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. I'm so thankful that you're continuing to connect with the family here at Midland Free. Um, Thank you, Joe and worship team. And thank you, those who are serving in children's ministry right now. Uh, We appreciate you, even if you're not able to be here because you're serving in our family. Thank you. Uh, what we're doing this summer is we're, yeah, amen, that's right. What we're doing this summer is we're um, doing what we've done the last few summers and journeying through the book of Mark, and it's been super exciting to me. It's been incredible. In fact, you see, that's the name of the series right now. It's the incredible versus the incredulous, and the reason for that is because we consider Jesus to be the true Mr. Incredible, a superhero in the greatest sense of the word. And what is happening now is it's moving towards the end of the gospel where he's running into opposition. He's developed a following. He's done some really cool stuff. People are excited about him. They're wondering if he's the Messiah that's going to overthrow the Roman empire and bring the kingdom of God. And as a result, the people who are in power don't really appreciate that. They like their positions, they like their opportunities, and wrecking the status quo is not something they're interested in. And so, the confrontation begins, and we'll watch that play out this summer, and then we'll go back into a fall series, and then coming in the spring, we'll finish out the book of Mark in conjunction with the season of the Holy Week and the Passion of the Christ and Eastern Resurrection following the details of the book of Mark. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you'll continue to stay plugged into that. But today, we want to continue with advancing our mission and vision. Recently, we unveiled our new vision and mission. And our new vision says we aspire to be a gospel-centered family where everyone we encounter moves one step or moves closer to Jesus every single day. And today we're going to see in particular how we can move closer to Jesus from Mark chapter 12. It's a short section. It's just a few verses, verses 13 through 17. And what we're going to talk about is essentially God's ownership of us, God's ownership of us. That's the big subject um, that we're talking about today. And we're going to what I'm going to do is Often I will read the text and then I'll explain a few different verses. But I think because this one's so locked in, some, in the cultural setting and the historical background. That I'm going to take it like one verse at a time and kind of unpack it and unpack it and unpack it. And then after we've unpacked much of the um, historical content and connected it to today. Then I'll give you three applications at the end and make those very clear. So the first part is we're just going to journey through. Um, mark twelve thirteen and following and the words of the scriptures are going to be up on the screen but it can also be helpful if you have your own bible to be able to follow along because i'm going to pull out a few things and make them pop and you may want to you know do a double take or look down or something like that so if you have a bible please follow along if not don't worry the words are up on the screen so beginning in mark chapter 12 The opposition is growing and essentially what's happened is grown to monumental proportions. Last week we saw a confrontation with Jesus and the leaders over one thing. Now it's another. And essentially what's happened is all of these diverse political parties who normally disagree with each other and debate and go after seeing who can get the most seats in the Sanhedrin in order to be in charge, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes. These groups have all united and come together, and that in and of itself is unusual because they don't like each other, but they really don't like Jesus. Last week, we heard from the scribes, and they tested Jesus on the interpretation of the law, which is their area of expertise. Today, we're going to hear from the Pharisees and another weird group called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are someone we don't know much about at all because there's only a few mentions of them. But you can obviously see they're connected to Herod. And Herod was a terrible dude. Now, there's actually five Herods in the New Testament. Most of the time, this one's referring to Herod the Great. And one of the Roman emperors said of him, it is better to be his sow than to be his son. The reason is he more frequently killed his sons than his sows. He killed three of them, in fact. Anytime he was afraid of someone challenging him, Off with their heads. This is a really bad guy. And these guys are all about power and compromise and doing whatever they need to move up their position in the world. They don't really care about religious favor or Judaism or ritual purity or anything else. The Herodians are just players. They're in it for whatever they can get. On the other hand, the Pharisees are the exact opposite. They're all about ritual purity, cultural preservation, and distance from all that they consider bad. Not just one rule, but two rules, three rules, four rules, five rules, as many as they can make in order to make sure they don't cross that line that they consider defilement. They don't look at themselves like the New Testament does. The New Testament sees us as all defiled, all broken, all sinful, and in need of purification They look at themselves the opposite way. They think they're already pure. And so the goal for them is not to defile themselves. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. So here are these Pharisees and they're coming together with the Herodians. And you read that, just that, and you should go, whoa, what is going on here? The people who are all about cultural capitulation and assimilation are getting together with the people who reject the culture entirely. And they're attacking Jesus. And so what they're going to do is exactly what the other groups did is form a trap. Now, their trap is a particularly good one. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But now that we've lined it up, let me read the first verse after we've said that and see how this pops out. Verse 13 says, and they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians Whoa, to trap him. That's their purpose in their talk, in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, teacher, there's a little bit of flattery that actually is true. We know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And then comes the question. Here's the question in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not stop now for us as Americans taxes are an issue I mean we our country is somewhat formed on this tea party thing and throwing stuff over the boat and being exploited and yada yada and so it's important to us but it not nearly to the degree that it was to the people at this time let me give you a picture of some of the coinage of that time and that'll demonstrate Um, a little bit more of what we mean. The first coin we see here is a golden one. The coin referred to in this passage is not gold, it's silver, but this one's a little bit more clear and preserved better because it's gold. So you can see it. There's a head of a Roman emperor on the front and on the back, there is the high priestess. Now, what does that mean? I brought a coin with me today and you know how it works. Call it in the air. Heads or tails? Let's see here. Cullen, you call it. Ready? Heads. It's heads. Good call. But you know what? Heads, it's Roman. Tails, it's Roman. Exactly right. Either way it goes, the Romans win. The coin communicates something. It is a symbol of their victory and domination of all the other cultures. It is the Pax Romana. You may have a whole boatload of your currency from your former economy, but it's worthless now. The Romans have come in and they've conquered you. You may have saved up a million dollars. They don't care. Throw it in the trash or burn it for fuel. Your money is worthless The only thing that matters now is Rome. Rome has run. Rome is the boss. On the front, it's the emperor. On the back, it is their religion. It is a symbol of subjugation and foreign domination. Now, as Americans, you can imagine, man, that is not cool. We are a freedom-loving people as well, and for someone else to impose themselves on us would be particularly offensive. But this goes even further than just our national pride and identity. This actually offends them in the religious level, in the financial level, and the personal level. Now, we already talked about the financial a little bit, but a closer analogy might be you were living in Poland in World War II, and Nazi Germany has invaded. All of a sudden... Your money is worthless and you may go to the store and you wanna buy food, whatever's left for your kids and you walk in and you've got some of your foreign currency and the shop owner says, I'm sorry. You know me, Joe, we love each other. We go way back, we played in school together but that money can't work here. It it just doesn't work. And so it's discouraging to them. It's a great loss, it's a financial loss but it's not only a financial loss, it's also in a religious offense. It's a religious offense because the second commandment forbids graven images. And what is on the front of this coin? A graven image. Let me show you an image of a silver denarius. This is a computerized version of one, but this is what it would look like if you had one at that time. Again, on the front is the head. On the back is the priestess, which they wouldn't have, pagan priestess or cults. But the inscription translated to English would actually read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus. This is, this is Tiberius would have been on the denarius at that time. Son of the divine. So not only is it a graven image, but it also proclaims blasphemy against the one true God of Israel and says, here is the picture Of the one you must worship now. Here is your ruler. Here is your God. Here is the son of the divine. And so to have this thing in your pocket. You're carrying around a symbol of your domination. Of your subjugation. Of your financial loss. And of your religious insult. You're carrying that right there. And it reminds you. Even though. The great Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The coin in your pocket says, No, he's not. Caesar is. It's an insult. Further, everyone on a personal level more than likely knew someone in their family who had been affected by the system of taxation. It was so extreme that there was basically no way out from under it. I mean, Rome conquers countries to profit off of them, to take their money. And as a result, the people are oppressed, they can't make a profit, all their money goes to the boss, and they can barely pay their own bills. And so what ends up happening, people are forced off their land, their land goes to Rome, they're sold into slavery, they go to Rome, or they're just plain executed. If you were a Jew under Roman dominion, you're in a bad spot. And every day you pull out a coin to pay for something. You're reminded of that. These are the people that own me. These are the people that insult me. These are the people that steal my land, take my money, and make it hard on my wife and family and children. And so with that in mind, Pharisees come to Jesus. And they are saying, Okay. Tell us. Is it okay to pay taxes to Rome? I suppose every red-blooded American would stand up at it by that point and say, no! Throw the tea overboard. Unite, rebel. But understand, if you do that, that just puts you in the same camp as every other zealot that the Romans have crucified before him, like Judas and others. If Jesus says no, then that means he's just a radical. He's an extremist. He's a crazy right-winger who's going to raise up a little bit of a following and maybe make a big mess one day, but all of a sudden be done away with. He's nothing. But if he says yes, then he's inherently endorsing this unjust, unfair system that's used to oppress people. What's he going to do? There's no way out. One commentator says their attempt was to impale him upon the horns of a dilemma. And it looks like they have effectively done so. They've taken one of the most emotional issues of the day and positioned it such that there's no way out for Jesus. Stuck. A lot like divorce and remarriage. This is a big one. And now they've got him. Verse 15. Says. But. Knowing. Understand who you're talking to here. The one who knows all things. Reads the hearts. And thoughts. And minds of humanity. Where nothing. Escapes him. Knowing their very. Hypocrisy, their hearts, Jesus said to them, Why do you put me to the test? What does that mean for us today? We can sit here quiet and silent like, and we can probably look pretty good. I mean you look nice today. You're all dressed up, cleaned up, ready for church, excited about the picnic afterwards. But what is going through your mind? What is in your heart right now? What did you think before you came in? And what did you feel last night before you went to bed? See, I don't know that, but Jesus does. This he knows. He sees right through the heart of humanity. And so there is no way out. I heard one preacher once describe it. How would you like it if you came in on Sunday morning and all of your thoughts were going across the bottom of the screen, just like the words to our songs? Like no 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 don't oh there's so and so hi <laughs> you know but that's the way it is for God. He sees every single thought. He knows every single heart. Everything that hurts you. Everything that makes you mad. Everything that you desire, that you don't have. Everything that you think about, that you shouldn't and look at, that you never should have. God sees and he knows. He knows every single heart. Jesus is there and he sees him coming and he knows. He knows. So he asks a question, why are you putting me to the test now? What I find really cool about this. You know, I just played it up as much as I could to show how he appears that he's trapped. But look at the next word. The next word is bring me a denarius. Now who's calling the shots? Who's calling the shots? Sometimes in my um, study, I look at where the imperatives or the commands are. Guess where who's given the commands in this passage? It's not the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the scribes. It's the Son of Man. He gives the commands. And here, what you see is that Jesus says, Okay, (laughs) he's kind of baiting or tempting them. All right, I'll answer your question. Let's see how this goes. Bring me a Denarius. Now, what does that do? Automatically, number one, he's commanding them. Number two, he's showing that they're complicit in the system. He's not carrying any money, he doesn't have this reminder in his pocket. But who knows, those guys might have a great big old purse full of them. (laughs) Oh yeah, by the way, (laughs) you guys evidently endorse it because you're rich and you're part of it. Don't nod at me and try to put me on the fence like I'm sort of this taxation endorser. You're the ones who make your living off of it. By the way, what's in your pocket? Oh, it's a denarius. (laughs) Imagine that. Let me see it. So they bring out a denarius... And expose their complicit participation in this system. And in verse 16, Jesus answers them and says to them, well, okay. Whose likeness is on it? And inscription is this. See, we talked about the inscription earlier. And they said to him, Caesars. And then you know the answer that's coming. But I want to pull out a few things right here. And the biggest and most important word is this, is likeness, likeness. It comes from the Greek word eikon, which is like our English word. Anybody got a guess? Icon, exactly right. And it means image or likeness. And the reason this is a big deal, I hinted at this earlier, but let me show you this now, is Jesus is always appealing to creation order. To original creative order. That is his answer. Pre-law. Pre-prophets. Pre-anything is what God designed in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden. God made male and female what? In his image. Exactly right. He's appealing to original creative order. With humanity being made in his image. And if that is the case. Then Jesus is like okay let's play this game. Play it by its rules. Whose image is on this coin? Whose is it? This is actually Queen Elizabeth. This is a toonie. More shiny than our quarters. But anyways. If it's hers, give it to her. But whose image is on us? It's the image of God. And if that is his, then give it to him. You see, image equals ownership. Hear that. Image equals ownership. Image equals ownership. And therefore, what it means is just like cattle or whatever else back in the day, we've been branded and we belong to someone. God owns us. Here then is where the applications begin. Let me read This final answer that Jesus says in verse 17. He says, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. And to God's the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. (laughs) There is no getting out of that. Amen? There is no getting out of that. God owns you. The boss owns the money. Give them what they're due. Here are the three applications we need to make to our life then. Number one. I'll just tell you them, and then we'll unpack them. Number one is ownership. Number two is direction. And number three is belonging. Ownership, direction, belonging. Ownership, direction, belonging. You see, it starts with ownership. It starts with ownership. God owns us. We are not our own. How many times have you heard people say, well, it's my body, I can do what I want. No, it's not. You don't belong to you. I don't belong to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that means you've been bought with a price. You are not your own. I am not our own. We are not our own. We belong to God as His creation. As His creation, we are the creatures. He is the created. And therefore, we are accountable. But humanity wants to do everything they can to step out from under that. They want to do away with creation. They want to do away with the image. And they want to own it themselves so they can determine it themselves. But we don't determine it. God owns us. God determines it. God decides. And it's his will, not ours. And so the first thing that Jesus points out is, look, you guys, you think you're the boss. But you are not. You are not the boss. It begins with ownership. And if you skip all your fancy regulations and laws and customs and culture and everything else. And just go back to the Garden of Eden. What you will see is whose image is on you. The image of God. Well who then owns you? God. Not the law. Not Herod. Not Caesar. Not anyone else. God. And that's actually convicting But it's encouraging too. Why is it encouraging? Well if he owns me. Then it's his job to keep me. He's responsible for what he owns. I could be theoretically held responsible for what I own. and What I'm given charge over. But God is responsible for what he owns. And what he's been given charge. He's given himself charge over. And as a result. We can be assured that he will lead us. Beside still waters and make us lie down in green pastures because his rod and his staff, they comfort us because we are the sheep of his pasture. We belong to him. And therefore, the good shepherd is going to take good care of us. If you don't belong to him, you belong to some other shepherd and you don't want that. You want the good shepherd. The good shepherd will take good care of you. Who else would you rather belong to? Not a human being. We're all sinful. We will exploit and selfishly use others to our own ends. But there is one who gives himself and asks nothing in return. And he is Christ. Give yourself to him. Good shepherd, you want to be owned by him. And once you are, then you're protected and provided for and kept well. That's where you want to be. But once you are the shepherds, you're not done there. What does the shepherd do? He's going to lead and direct and guide you. And so that image of ownership that's been placed on us not only gives us comfort and protection, it also gives us direction, it gives us direction. Remember, ownership and direction. Number two, direction. God's ownership of my life determines my destiny. God's ownership determines my destiny. Where is this thing going? Where is it headed? How will it end? Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's that image thing again. This is where we're headed this is where we're going. This is our calling is to be conformed to the image of our son. That's why in our mission and vision, we say we aspire to be a gospel center family that moves one step closer to Jesus every day because this is our destiny. This is our direction. This is what we're supposed to do is become more like Jesus. Move closer to him. God's image determines our destiny. We are the clay. He is the potter. And therefore, he has the right to shape and mold and form and direct however he wants. And what that means for me and what that means for you is yes, sir. If you're a Christian and you have not learned to submit your life to Christ, then you don't know what it means to follow him. Being a Christian means submission. You have a Lord. And people in other cultures, they understood what that means. And there is no way out from under that. Lord means boss in every way. You have an absolute authority in your life. And the authority is not, well, I have a peace or I feel this or this is what it means to me. No, that's completely subjective. It is not a subjective personal religion. But instead, it is an absolute authority that is established by creator God. That's ownership, that's lordship, that's direction. He is the potter, we are the clay. Our lives must submit to him. Sometimes I think it's probably the case that in our zeal for evangelism, we often make it too easy for people to convert, as if nothing has to change or they don't have to give up anything or, you know, God wants to meet you where you're at. Well, that's true. But look at what Jesus says. You know, leave everything and follow me. Go and sin no more. By the way, do this. People are like, whoa, that's hard saying, Lord. Yeah. Many are called, but few are chosen. It's hard to follow Christ. Because we have to give up ownership. Let him direct our lives. That ain't easy. Never has been and never will be. But that's the deal. Number one is ownership. Number two is direction. And number three, this is the encouraging part, particularly to me and hopefully to you as well, is belonging, belonging. A little inside scoop here. and I'm not asking for advice or counsel or whatever. But I'm at that phase in life, you know, like midlife crisis zone, you know? I'm like, do I go out and buy a motorcycle or do I, what do I do here, you know? But Yes, okay, good, I like that answer. It's good. See me afterwards. (laughs) Um, But it's weird because you're in this phase where you're like not sure where home is anymore. Don't know where home is. Like as your parents begin to age, eventually they pass away. And when you're a young person, you grow up in mom and dad's home and that's home. You know, you go out with your friends, but you come back at night and that's home. Maybe even go off to college and you're away for a little while. But on Christmas break or spring break or whatever, you come home. Maybe you're a young person and you've gone out into the world and you establish yourself and you're having a good time and you're living and whatever. But at some point, there's going to be a family reunion or a wedding or a funeral or whatever and you go back home. And then you begin to grow a little older and all of a sudden people start to move away and things change and then people start dying and you look around and you're like, where's home? I don't know because we moved a lot and we're from a bunch of different places and everyone else has moved and people have died. I guess this is home. And then someone will say to me, well, home is where your children are. Well, that's great. And my children will be here for a little bit longer, but everyone I ever talked to says blink and they're gone. Before long, my children are gone. And I'm like, where's home? And all of a sudden, if that lottery ticket or magic investment pays off, you've got one home here and one home there. You're living in your summer home and you're living in your winter home. And then you're still like, where's home? I don't know. Where is home? I want to go home, don't you? But where is it? C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation that I was made for another world. Maybe you've had those feelings before, like me, and you're sometimes wondering, where's home? I can tell you. It's not here. It's with him. Where do you belong? With the one who owns you. With the one who loves you. With the one who gave himself for you. That's home. Home is with him. And that's what's such a beautiful and encouraging thing about it right now. Is we can experience that sense of home regardless of where we're at. I read recently in Christianity Today about the return of these schoolgirls. Who were captured by Boko Haram. And I pray that horrible, terrible, evil, outrageously, unjust, despicable, disgusting things like that never happen. But as I think about that, what's interesting is you hear about their stories of smuggled Bibles and prayers in secret and how they endured and how they survived and how they suffered. Is that even stolen from mom and dad, Jesus was still with them. Even if they're taken from their home, They still have a home in him. And regardless of where you're stolen or taken to or whatever happens to you, if you are with Christ, then Christ is with you and you are at home in him. And he assures you that regardless of what you experience now, you will be at home with him forever in heaven. That is so encouraging. That is so comforting to me. You know, Jesus owns us. He owns you. He owns me. If you're a believer in him, if you have trusted in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, then he takes ownership of you. He bought you with his blood. And once you are his, he will not let you go. He's not going to part with his possessions. He's going to keep them and bring them to the foot of the Father so he can say, everyone that you gave me, I have kept, and now I give them back to you. If you are one of his sheep, and you are safe. You are secure, and you have a home. Render unto Caesar things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God's you belong to him we belong I belong to Jesus and we marvel at ownership direction and belonging this means we enjoy and glorify God we embrace his word we engage the world and led by the Spirit, all of us are going to welcome one another. Plug in and reach out. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus our Savior. Thank you that we are at home in Him. Lord, I confess to wandering and and worrying and not knowing at times where I belong. But you constantly remind that we belong to you. As a result, Lord, we always belong. We always are at home. We always have direction. Please help us to be conformed more and more to the image of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.